I'm Steve Backshaw, and you're listening to the Aussie Wildlife Show. Hey guys, welcome to the Aussie Wildlife Show. Adrian here, and I'm here, of course, with Steve. G'day, guys. And we're very lucky today to have with us Sam Bywaters, conservationist and environmental educator. Welcome, Sam. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. Now, I've known you for many years because you teach at Herbre TAFE, amongst many other things that you do, and occasionally you get Animals Anonymous in there with some live animals. But you're doing a PhD now on conserving orchids. So I've been keen to get you up here to have a look at some orchids. Unfortunately, they're not up yet. They're up, but they're not flowering yet, are they? No, well, they're in very exciting leaf stage, and I'm trying to learn about orchids in leaf stage because they're only in flower for such a short time, so you're much more useful to orchids and learning about them if you can actually recognise them in that leaf stage, which goes for such a longer period of time. Now, your PhD is called Conserving Orchids in a Changing Climate. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, I can. So orchids are really particular in the habitats that they grow in. So they're often thought of as indicators for environmental health because if one small thing is going wrong in the environment then the orchids will be one of the first species to show it, a bit like the coral reefs. Uh, the Great Barrier Reef is you know, one of the first ecosystems to show signs of stress due to climate change. So the plant-based equivalent is the orchids. So in undertaking this research, I've started with a literature review, which is what you commonly do when you're studying something. You, you go and read everything that's out there that you can about it. And just recently, a couple of two years ago, there was a paper published in the UK which was uh, purported to be the first evidence of orchids being affected by climate change. And they were able to work this out because they have 356 years of data from herbariums where they collect dried plant samples and from entomologists who were recording the first flight of bees and insects for the season. So they have these very, very long records. And why that is important for orchids is this one particular species of orchid is only pollinated by this one particular species of bee. So the, the orchid is pollinated through a process called pollination by sexual deception, which means the orchid is flashing itself about uh, wanting to be pollinated by that one species of bee. So the only way that the orchid can get pollinated by the bee is if the female bee is not around. So the male first emerges and has his first flight for the season and he's attracted to the orchid because it looks and smells like the female bee. They've found that over time and in recent years, the female bee has started emerging before the orchid is fully open. So this means that when the male comes out and has his first flight, he's looking for love and what he sees and smells first is that female bee. So no longer is he going over to visit the orchid and pollinate it, he's just going straight over to the female bee. And so what used to be you know, a, a relationship between the male bee and the orchid is uh, being usurped by climate change. And so the poor old orchid is left out of the picture now. It still grows, but it doesn't get pollinated. And they're thinking that the implications for the orchid uh, in the future, if we still want this orchid to survive, is that it will need to be hand-pollinated because the bee is no longer doing that service. So the orchid only has maybe just one 
flying insect that is its pollinator? Yeah, quite often. So in the plant and animal world, there's always ifs and buts. So there is some orchids that are, that have a specific one-to-one relationship with a particular species of insect. So one insect species, one orchid species, they're the only two that can do it for each other. And there's some orchids that are generalists. You know, they will have a number of flies, gnats, mosquitoes come along and pollinate them. And then there's some orchids that aren't even uh, reliant on an insect for pollination at all. So what I aim to do in my studies is to determine if this UK example is happening anywhere in my field sites in South Australia. So the bee is, is emerging earlier than the orchid now mm-hmm. when they used to emerge sort of together is there any chance that the orchid might evolve to start coming up later to, to coincide with a bee or yeah certainly so i mean the evolutionary process you know has been known to take millions of years before so this is the problem we face with climate change is that the the rate and pace of change uh, environmental change to the heating and drying cycles is happening so much quicker than than what evolution can keep up with Mm, but it's obviously evolution of the bee is managing to change quicker than the orchid, I'm guessing then. Yeah, yeah. So, so we're now going to start talking about phenology, which is uh, another fancy word for saying the timing of life cycle events in response to temperature. So you'll be familiar with when the autumn leaves drop off of trees or when ducks lay their eggs all these things are triggered by heat and light so as the days get longer or the nights get shorter any of those things a bird or a tree might be prompted to you know do its thing which is quite different to evolution phenology phenology with a ph new word yeah i like it like a good new word (laughs) yeah when you mention mosquito orchids oh so you mentioned some orchids are pollinated by mosquitoes is that why mosquito orchids we get in the Adelaide Hills are called mosquito orchids? Yeah, that's a really good question. It probably is, actually, because there's such a thing as the gnat orchid as well. the gnat orchids. Yeah, Yeah. so, yeah, I think you're right about that. Yeah, and some of these orchids look like the actual animal that they want to pollinate them too, don't they? They look like they've got little wings and... Yeah, so um, they have quite a number of features that are designed to, you know, not only look but also smell like the creature that they're trying to trick or attract. I went to a really interesting presentation once. It was about what's smarter, plants or animals? And everyone that walked in the room, they went, oh, animals are smarter for sure. You know, they know how to do things and do tricks and all of this. But the presenters from the Canberra Botanic Gardens, they showed us time and time again that, in fact, plants are smarter than animals. Plants are manipulating animals to do all sorts of things all the time. Sorry, is there a difference between a gnat and a mozzie? So, yeah, it is different. So we have native mosquitoes and native fungus gnat and some of these little tiny things that they actually look like mosquitoes, the ones that are pollinating the orchids. So you'd have to get a microscope Mm. to tell the difference. Yeah, right. It's interesting how you said they're an indicator of a healthy ecosystem Mm -hmm. because they have not just the relationship with the pollinators, but there's also all the soil microbes too that are really important for them. That is very interesting, actually. So it's a bit of a three-way love affair. I would see it as, as I said before, um, the orchids are really particular in where they will grow. They will only grow in the most pristine of environments, and that includes the below-ground soil health, which includes the mycorrhiza or underground fungus that you're talking about, and the above-ground health of um, the orchid needs to be 
surrounded by healthy bushland as well because then this healthy bushland will contain habitat for the pollinator, which, you know, is the fungus gnat or the mozzie or a native wasp is another common pollinator. Not so much the native bees. I mean, they certainly can, but it's more the smaller insects. There you go. Another good thing about wasps there. No good things about wasps. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things I keep hearing is that the pesticide use on crops is affecting the invertebrates, which then obviously affects pollination. Do you know anything about that? Other than to say a poison is a poison is a poison. So, you know, if you are applying a poison anywhere in the environment, atmosphere, in your home, fly spray, you know, you think, oh, I'm just knocking out the the flies that are pests around my house. It does have flow-on effects, you know, and I think that the world needs to learn to move away from these pesticides and insecticides because they're doing more harm than good. Yeah, well said. A lot of people like to get out and go bird watching. A lot of people like to go out and just go bushwalking. And there are people that go out specifically to look for orchids, like orchid stalking. It's pretty addictive. <laughs> yeah, it is. Um, and that's good that you've brought that up, actually, because... Um, so you mentioned before I'm doing a PhD and it has a number of chapters to it. And one of my chapters is all about analysing the data from this new app that's about to come out. It'll be launched uh, in a couple of months' time. It's called the Wild Orchid Watch app. And this app goes on your phone and it's for people, whether you be just a, um, you know an everyday bushwalker or a supreme orchid enthusiast, um, it's for people to go out, take photos of orchids and they can collect the photos and they can be like a personal library. And if you want to actually get help on IDing the orchids or finding more about them, you can upload them to the Wild Orchid Watch website. Uh, we're going to have a bunch of orchids orchidologists sitting <laughs> that was not awkwardologists but <laughs> orchidologists <laughs> a bunch of orchidologists sitting behind the scenes um, and vetting the photos that come through and uh, checking ID and giving feedback to people so in this way we hope to build up a map, an Australian map of where and when orchids are occurring, where and when they're flowering and this will be to help orchid conservationists build up a better picture of how orchids can be helped if they are being affected by climate change or is there some new pristine patches that need to be helped out with conservation works or in fact it's even going to help us build up a map of the various ranges of all the different orchids. Uh, So we've got 1700 species of orchids that occur in Australia and in South Australia we have about 380. 1700 species in Australia? Yeah. You go. How many you got here? We've got 380 in South Australia. How many have you got? I've got about, I think, 12 or 13 here on the property. That's a good effort. So another of my study sites will be Belair National Park, which is in the Mount Lofty Ranges, which is a known orchid hot spot for South Australia. And in Belair, there is 66 species of orchid. Wow. And many people don't know that there's actually something in flower every month of the year so over the hotter months january february we tend to have one or two species flowering building up to about 30 different species in september so you know if you are keen on orchids belay's the spot most of our orchids are quite small like they're as clive would call them exquisite they're little i mean when you look at you know cut flower orchids they're huge things people have in their gardens and things a lot of ours are tiny even some the size of a five cent piece but during summer 
there's a hyacinth orchid, and it doesn't even look like a native. When I first saw it many years ago, I thought it was a, a garden escaping. It's a beautiful big pink orchid. So we do get that here. There's a couple of those here in summer. Quite often, a lot of the small orchids flower along the trails, don't they? Yeah, they do. So orchids uh, typically like a bit of soil disturbance, um, and I, I don't quite know why why that is. But it's very convenient that you can be a bushwalker and just be walking along the path, and they're you know quite often scattered and sprinkled along the sides of the path. And your comment before about small and large orchids, yes, many of them are small, and many of them are quite large. The petals may be as big as the palm of your hand, and the hyacinth orchid Dipodium roseum that you were talking about before that actually does come in a white variant as well so it could be pink or white ah. mm. so do you get the, the bigger flowers of orchids because I've seen a lot of orchids in South Australia quite a few here that like I say they are all small and it's hard to get your eye in to see them but if you went up to the tropics of Australia would they be bigger they tend to be bigger yeah. you know more heat more water mm. and you tend to get arboreal species up there in northern Queensland as well, whereas in South Australia, all of ours are terrestrial. They mm. grow on the ground. I was reading about vanilla is a is an arboreal orchid. Yeah, vanilla. The vanilla uh, well, vanilla essence is a is a fake derivative of it, but you can buy a real vanilla, and it's a beautiful flavour. And um, way back, you know, hundreds of years ago, the orchids were reducing in numbers because they were being collected because they were so beautiful but also because the tubers were edible and you could make a traditional tea out of it but now they say that the biggest threats are a changed fire regime competition from weeds and grazing from rabbits and kangaroos yeah rabbits have been terrible for everything can they i think but how does fire what side of fire is it more fires or less fires or so it's Again, ifs and buts with the orchids. Some orchids actually respond really well to a bush fire to go through in an appropriate season when they're not flowering. So orchids like a bit of clearing, a bit of less competition from the understory. So if you remove that understory through seasonal fires then you know they tend to benefit and some orchids flower more prolifically after but some orchids don't benefit from seasonal fires at all and in fact it just really destroys them so for any land manager wanting to know how to conserve the orchids you really have to do a lot of research to find out what is the right time the right season the right intensity and there's certainly been plenty of conservation programs in Australia that have saved orchids. You know, some orchids were down to the last, you know, five or ten individuals in a swamp in South Australia. This happened recently. So they took a punt and they burnt half the patch. And then the following year, the orchids came back, you know, tenfold. Oh, wow. Mm. Yeah, we had Clive and Claire Chesson on the show. Mm -hmm. And Claire was talking about some species will flower perfectly after a controlled burn but all the pollinators have been killed, so they're not actually reproducing, they're just flowering. So you're trying to find out where the climate is affecting our orchids. What's your process? How do you get into that? Yeah, good question. Um, so I was saying before about the literature review, so part of the research that I've uncovered there and the UK example of the 356 years of data, a way that they have tried to figure out what's going on with the orchids is looking at those herbarium samples, you know, the pressed and dried flowers that have been analysed. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to use a transect line that has been set up by the University of Adelaide, which is 1,000 kilometres long, and it stretches all the way from Flinders Ranges 
to Kangaroo Island in the south. So this transect line has been set up to cross a number of ecological zones, habitat types, soil types, rainfall types, and previous researchers have used it to study you know, broad-scale things in the landscape, but no-one has used it to study orchids before. So I will look along that transect at key locations and for key species, and then I'll find out the now picture of what is happening, like when and where are orchids flowering now along that transect line. And then once I've built up that picture, I will compare it to data that's held in the SA herbarium, and I'll, when I look at those old records in the SA Herbarium, that will tell me a time, a date and a place that that particular orchid was flowering because typically orchids are only collected when they're in full flower. They don't collect them when they're at leaf stage because you can't tell them you know, what they are. So, so I'll have old records telling me time, date, place and then I'll have new records telling me time, date, place and then I'll be able to determine if there's been a shift in phenology and if orchids are flowering later or earlier. And then I'll have to look at if this has implications for the insects they're associated with, which is a whole other PhD uh, by itself. So I'm going to have to look back and use someone else's insect records, you know, to determine flight times and, and pollination times. So using that data, we'll be able to tell if there's been a change over time. And then, of course, uh, I'll bring that back to uh, my local field site, which is Belair National Park, where I'll be able to undertake a number of field-based experiments. And when you're doing a PhD, you have to actually do something experimental or manipulative in the environment to tell if your work is doing anything. You know, you can't just go out there and research a bunch of stuff. You actually got to do something as well. So I'll investigate things to do with fire history, weeding protocols, and see, you know, what land managers need to do in order to keep these orchids thriving. So you said there are 380 species of orchid in South Australia. So someone must have sat there and watched each one of those get pollinated so that we know it's full cycle. Yeah, well, surprisingly, no. Sometimes it's quite a mystery because when you look at the research, many of the orchids have a question mark next to them, as in, we don't know what pollinates this. Yeah, so it's not always an insect, by the way. It could, um, some are wind pollinated or, or, you know, just not bird. I don't think they're bird pollinated at all. Um, But certainly some orchids have been studied to death and some have not. It's true of the whole plant and animal kingdom, really. It's mm. so fascinating. I'm always fascinated by, like, the pheromones. Like, they, they put out a scent and the animals can detect it. Yeah. That's Isn't bizarre. that crazy yeah. that an yeah. insect could smell it from, you know, a couple of hundred metres away yeah. and be drawn to it? They don't reckon that humans can smell pheromones. We have, like, a vestigial Jacobson's organ. You've been dying to get this. I've been dying to say this. I want to know more about it because um, a lot of animals can detect pheromones, but we don't know whether humans actually can smell. Like, it sounds gross, but if you know, if another human's on heat or uh, you know, territorial cues and things like that, that. I reckon I've heard opposite to that. Yeah. I'm, I'm pretty sure I saw a crappy English TV show one time where they it got... wouldn't have been crappy then. <laughs> where, they got Racist, people, yeah. where they got people to uh, blindfolded to you know kiss a number of different people, um, and then they found out later on that the, the people that wanted to couple up were the ones whose pheromones they were most attracted to. 
So it was nothing to do with sight or the way you kissed, it was the way you smelt. Yeah, I think they were the genetically the most different. So I think you're more attracted to people that are genetically different. Was that that? That study? would make sense, wouldn't it? Yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm digging deep down there now. So. <laughs> <laughs> I know, we're going to have to get a geneticist on the show. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Or maybe just watch more English shows. Yeah, that's where it's at. <laughs> Are there any South Australian orchids that have become extinct recently? Um, so there's none that are documented, but I um, have read in a couple of books that the orchid experts think that some have gone extinct before they were even collected or verified. And um, it, it is known that some orchids have died out of local places. So, yeah, become locally extinct. Yes, certainly that has happened. What do you think of the future for them? If with climate change and things, are, are they going to suffer? Because they sound like they're, um, for want of a better way of putting it, like quite hard maintenance in what they want. <laughs> I have heard of orchids being called high-maintenance girlfriends, you know, that they just need everything to be just right. I want my soil, my atmosphere, you know, my climate. <laughs> um, <laughs> high-maintenance boyfriend, perhaps. Yes, the long and short of it is the future is bleak for orchids. Ever since the earliest records have been kept, that orchid numbers have been reducing and they are continuing to reduce daily as we speak, year by year. Mm. Orchids are dying out. Well, it got is true. Friends that have lived in the hills for you know, 50, 60 years that are into plants and they go walking, and you know there might be a bit of road verge that has a couple of orchids, but they can remember when it had half a dozen species. So it's like a slow decrease in species diversity that most people wouldn't even notice. Yeah, that's right. So I've spoken to some some older folk who, when they were kids, they used to go and play at Belair National Park and they remember fields of orchids, you know, rolling around amongst the orchids. And I go to Belair National Park every week, you know, a couple of times a week, and I've never seen a massive field of orchids at all. And they were food for it. Like the Indigenous people would eat the orchid tubers, wouldn't they? Yes. So it indicates that there would have been a fair few around. Obviously, there was a lot more bush then too. Uh, fragmentation must be a huge issue for orchids. It's not like a, a bird's going to fly from a mile away and do a poo and drop an orchid seed and suddenly you've got orchids on your property there. They don't work like that. No, well, in fact, the majority of the seed is wind-blown. Um, so it's tiny microscopic seed, smaller than little grains of pepper. And, you know, you have to honestly get out your, your lens, your microscope to have a look at that so they do travel on the wind that is their main way of moving around and it's often thought uh, well a saying that I've heard is that orchids were born to fly so meaning that just if you conserve this one little piece of bushland here that's not necessarily going to be enough for them because they they're always looking to move and expand and blow with blow with the wind and find new territory but that being said um, an orchid seed will not be successful unless it lands in a patch of soil that has exactly the right mycorrhizae for it so the orchid seed of different species associates with different species of mycorrhizae so if your soil is inoculated with this type of mycorrhiza or fungus you will only be able to attract you know a couple of species of orchids so different orchid species need different patches of soil what this does i mean i guess on one level it's kind of a bit sad but on the other level it's just remarkable when you do go to these places that do have the orchids it makes it even more special you know you mm. can look at it and go there's so much going on here that i'm not seeing right now 
Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And I never tire of looking for orchids. We've got plenty of patches around South Australia, our conservation reserves and so on, where you can go and see a different orchid every month of the year. So, you know, if anyone's looking for a new hobby, I would, I would greatly encourage you to start up uh, Orchidology. I would encourage you to download the Wild Orchid Watch app. There is a test version that you can use right now. You can get it for free. Yeah, you can certainly look up our website as well. We have Sophie Thompson as our ambassador, the gardening guru. She's fantastic. She's made a lovely little clip for us uh, on YouTube. So check that out. And that is very, very yeah, motivating. She was on the show last year and she came around springtime. She's great, yeah. She is great. And we saw a lot of orchids when she was here. Yeah, so the best way to conserve orchids is to protect their habitat where they're already occurring because you know they already like it there, but you just need to stop those external pressures that are coming in, uh, such as, you know, too frequent fire or, you know, the herbivores that come and munch them all off, um, trampling, illegal collecting, you know, competition from weeds. When I go to Belair National Park, that's the biggest threat I see is the competition from weeds. And I was recently looking at the species list of Belair National Park and I was astounded to see that the that the that there is actually more species of weeds in the park than there is of native plants. So that blew me away. That if, so it, it was only last week I read that Australia has 24,000 native plants and 27,500 introduced plants. There you go. Well, that that ratio is playing out in Belair National Park as well. Incidentally, there's 28,000 species of orchid in the world. (laughs) Isn't that crazy? Yeah. The most expensive one is the Rothschild's orchid. Is that right? It's my only fact about orchids. Really? (laughs) Where does that one grow? (laughs) Well, the place I've seen it is Borneo. Yeah, so the number that you said, 28,000 orchid species. So this is a number that, depending on who you speak to and which book you read, you, you could go higher, you could go lower. The taxonomy hasn't been worked out. It's uh, waxing and waning all the time, and there is now the problem of hybridisation as well. So you can get an orchid that looks like it's, you know, this certain species over here, but you'll find it's got a little bit of a, you know, twisted tongue like that species over there, then you've got a new species. So, yeah, they're still working out the taxonomy, so there's no straight number on the. I've heard anywhere between 25 and 30,000. So they could be mixed species in the wild mm-hmm. as well? Because I think they do that in the hobby, don't they? they yeah, cross... they do. They, they cross-fertilise, mm. cross make cultivars. Mm. You did a project recently with um, high-tech nesting boxes. Can we talk a bit about that? Um, Yeah, so I'm involved in a couple of organisations in a volunteer role. Uh, One of them is the Growing Data Foundation and the other is EMS, Experiencing Marine Sanctuaries. So I'll tell you about Growing Data Foundation. This all started about mm, six years ago where some friends and I got together uh, for a weekend competition. We took part in the GovHack competition. Happens all over Australia. And that's where government departments open up their data sets. Imagine something like um, the tax department or Department for Social Security or, you know, bus and train timetables. Could be any number of things. Um, They open up data sets and they invite the general community just to muck around and play with them, repurpose them and come up with a new idea, perhaps, you know, to liberate the data, so to speak. So some friends and I, yeah, we did that. Um, We spent all weekend in there. And in order to take part in the competition, you had to come up with an app, a website and um, a video. 
And we managed to do all of that and we managed to get our app uploaded to the Google Play Store and the Apple Store as well, which was, you know, not an easy thing. It takes a long time to get things onto the Apple Store. But anyway, we did it. We made an app called What Grows Here. And so this app is, you know, you have it on your phone. You could be standing in any little patch of land in South Australia that we have the data for and um, you press the button and it gives you an answer on what plants grow there naturally. So if you wanted to revegetate or if you wanted to have a purple flowering hanging basket, you could filter out different aspects and you could say, yeah, I only want hanging basket, I only want purple flower or, you know, I want to revegetate. So we did it. We came up with proof of concept. After a few uses, uh, it did crash and it had some faults, which you would expect after an app built in a weekend. Uh, so we have this app under development right now. But the thing is that that group that we started, Growing Data Foundation, which is the name of our group, our team name, we then got some funding because we won the competition. And then we went on to have um, a, a number of other projects that we have got involved in, such as the Things Network, which I can tell you more about, and also Smart Nest Boxes. So Smart Nest Boxes are like your nest boxing for wildlife that you would have up in trees for possums and parrots and bats and so on. But the nest box is actually monitored with some sensors so that you can tell things like humidity, temperature, usage, you know, if an animal's in or out or if it has activated the doorway lever. And we can even have video capability as well, but that takes up a lot of bandwidth and sort of tends to throw everything out the corner. So uh, we partnered up with Adelaide City Council and Natural Resources Management South Australia and we put up some of these nest boxes in the Adelaide City Parklands and again we had proof of concept that it works, animals go there, you can record data such as temperatures I mentioned before and it can all go to a central dashboard and then if you have land managers and people that are investing in conservation measures you'll you'll know if it's working or not you'll you'll know um, say for example if you want to target a rare and threatened species you'll know exactly where and when to place the nest box um, and you'll know if you've been successful in in that the animals have engaged with the box and if they're breeding or not so if you're targeting a particular species you'll know that it bred and these are the conditions um, and you have those parameters which suit that species. Yeah. It's fascinating. Yeah, correct. So um, another application that we have have got this at, you can just Google it and look it up, um, Mount Burr Swamp, which is down in the southeast of South Australia. We've recently installed some data loggers down there to monitor water height of the swamp. And this is part of their conservation program. They need to know when it's you know fully wet fully dry or if any water needs to be moved around the system so we've got live logging of that data as well it's showing obviously water height and water movement through different stages of the swamp the land managers down there they might need to you know move water into different sections of the habitat they can do so they know when it's really really wet too wet too dry um, and move it as needed have they got any historic data for that now or is this sort of the starter point of that so in so 10 years you'll be able to previously compare. they had been monitoring it manually you know a person goes and steps mm. out into the swamp with a ruler and you know yells out <laughs> 57 <Help>. centimeters <laughs> um, but now you can see it when you're off site and when you're remote 
But um, the, look, we've got a number of projects happening. Um, we're collaborating with people all over the place with farmers. We're working with farmers and uh, water levels in tanks, you know, in far flung paddocks so that the farmer wouldn't need to spend half a day driving over to a paddock or a tank or a water trough to see if it was full or not. They could actually monitor all of this data remotely just by looking at a, a dashboard on their laptop or whatever they might take in their ute. And we're also doing some other stuff to do with fire responses as well. Water tanks where freely available water is for fire management as well. So, yeah, we've got our fingers and pies all over the place. That's great. And a lot of this information can just be accessed by your phone. Yes, absolutely. They have those weather stations that they self-empty every day, like a rain gauge, and, and, and it all sends the information to your phone so you can be somewhere else in the world and look at your phone and go, oh, we just had X amount of middle of rain and... The temperature's this, and it's fascinating. And it records it all, logs it all too. Yeah, yeah. It's recording some great data for the future. Yeah, it'd be handy sure. in all the work you're doing with, like, the orchids and things. Mm. Absolutely. And also, like, handy on a global scale as well to do with food production as well. You know, it's all about water conservation, really. You know, like, no farmer wants to put on more water or, or too little water and, and risk losing the whole crop. So this is a sensible use of, of water and, and looking after our precious resources. Yeah, we're in the driest state in the driest inhabited continent, aren't we? Yes, we are. That's why it's a great place for the Growing Data Foundation. <laughs> There's plenty of projects for us. Yeah. <laughs> So I mentioned before I volunteer with a couple of different organisations. So one is GDF, the Growing Data Foundation, and the other one is EMS, Experiencing Marine Sanctuaries, which um, is fabulous. We're one of a kind in Australia, but we have modelled ourselves, in fact, on a New Zealand version, which is Experiencing Marine Reserves. So they are our sister organisation or perhaps even mother organisation because they were first. Um, so it's all about running safe and supervised snorkel events for the community because it's recognised that the uh, people ain't ever going to save um, what they don't know and what they don't love. So it's about inviting the community to fall in love with the ocean um, and perhaps they would become great ambassadors for the ocean and you know vote for marine parks and and help keep them alive. So it's been shown time and again in the scientific literature that the more marine parks you have, uh, the more the fish and wildlife breed up and the more healthy the whole of the ocean is in general. So whilst you know 1% of the population don't like the fact that we have marine parks in South Australia, because they're not that old, they're only a few years old, the data shows that, you know, when you have these reserves, it's better off for everyone, even the fishing industry. Fishing, tourism and conservation, they all benefit from having marine reserves. Well, we had your good friend Carl Charter on the show recently and uh, he told us that the reefs we have here in South Australia are more diverse than the Great Barrier Reef. Yeah. It blew my mind, that did. Yeah, yeah that was... it's totally true. Like, not many people know that. I even went to a lecture recently with uh, Valerie Taylor, you know, the shark expert, Ron and Valerie Taylor, that did all the shark stuff for the Jaws movies. She said that she enjoys snorkelling in South Australia more than any other part of the world because it is more diverse, more colourful, more abundant and wowsers than the rest of the world. And 11,600 years ago, there was no Great Barrier Reef. You could just walk out there. It was all... The sea levels were like 30 foot lower, we're in an ice age, and there was no Great Barrier Reef. Wow. Just land. Yeah. Because in ice ages, 
South Australia, we didn't get ice. We just got drier, which is, like we said before, with the driest state and the driest inhabited continent. Something that blows me away is that um, Uluru, the middle of Australia, used to be completely underwater. I remember learning that, going, how could that be? Oh, we've still got vestigial tropical Livingstonia palms and things growing in gorges and canyons in central Australia, don't we, to show when we used to be a higher rainfall, more tropical environment. It's, so mm, it's been mm. through a lot, this continent. It's... So you've done a lot of stuff. I mean, there's so many other things that we haven't even talked about. You've made a career out of conservation. It's obviously something you're very passionate about. What would you say to someone that wanted to, maybe they weren't happy with the job they were doing and they wanted to maybe work in the environmental field? Um, yeah, great question. Uh, so I work at TAFE. That's my day job. I'm there three days a week at the Herbray campus. I'm a lecturer in conservation and land management. So I come across a lot of people exactly as you just described. They're, they're not so enamoured of their day job anymore. They're looking for a career change. So we have a real cross, um, cross mix of people that are young school leavers or uh, people that have been to university and um, they didn't they felt like they didn't get enough field work when they were at university, but then we get a lot of mature age workers as well that are looking to change industry. So what I say to all of them is the same advice I give myself, is not only do you need to uh, do your studies, you need to network, but you also need to get heavily involved in volunteering. So personally, you know, I volunteer for a couple of organisations still. Um, I have for the last 30 years, as long as I've wanted to get into the conservation field. Uh, Trees for Life is a great place to start. Your local uh, national park, the Friends of group attached with your national park, or EMS, come along and join EMS. Look, you could start your own volunteer group or volunteer organisation. You could just find a bit of bush and start working on it. So I encourage everybody to get involved with volunteer work. Then this grows your network and it grows your contacts. And it actually gets you connected with a piece of land and it helps grow your passion. So I'd say to everybody, keep on volunteering, um, do some more. Because I mean, a lot of volunteering sometimes has a bit of a negative connotation about it. People don't want to do it because it doesn't pay and you feel like you're being used and abused. But I certainly don't see it that way at all. I see it as being an opportunity for you to throw yourself at something that you love and make a difference in the world. That's well said. Mm, Very well said. I've done a lot of volunteering and you do meet like-minded people and you learn so much. And that is, in fact, one one of the biggest things. I learn as much from my students as they learn from me. And that's the thing. Everybody picks up little different tidbits of information. I've learned from you here today, Adrian and and Steve. Thank you for sharing your knowledge about the... What was it, the Moroccan orchid? (laughs) Well, you listened. (laughs) It was the Rothschild. (laughs) The Rothschild orchid. I'd never heard of that one before. I thought you were going to start telling me... It wasn't even from Morocco. (laughs) I thought you were going to tell me about cigarettes. It's a brand of cigarette, isn't it? (laughs) That's something, yeah, that is actually. (laughs) Rothman's cigarettes, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Wasn't that? I might have got them mixed up. No, it's the Rothschild's orchid. The most expensive orchid. I'll look it up later. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, don't know what relevance the most expensive orchid really means, but... I guess they're rare and highly collected. And named after a really rich family. Yeah, that that helps. control the world. Hey, there's a great business idea. Control the world. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, control the world. No, naming a naming an. I'm going to name a nest box after a really rich and famous person, and then hope it attracts some funding. That's a great idea. Mm. Like like people like Marilyn Manson named himself after two very famous people, Marilyn Monroe and Charles Manson. You could name an orchid after a serial killer and a pop star. <laughs> <laughs> wow. 
Wait, 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 no. <laughs> I had to workshop that out. But what you were saying about mixing with like-minded people uh, certainly helps you, you know, speed up your your learning process and um, just keeps you engaged. You know, you'll make some of your best friends volunteering. So, yeah. it's And look, and I know, and to our listeners that love wildlife, I know this is a very plant-heavy episode. I can't say it enough. Like when I... I'm teaching a classroom full of kids or students of any age. Obviously, I'm up there with animals and people want to hear about the animals, but you don't have the wildlife without the habitat. And it is awesome. And when you start getting into it, it is addictive. You don't think it's going to be, but the more you know about it and learn about it, the more relevant it becomes. Each individual plant's got its its evolutionary history, it's followed genetic history, it's got its relationships with the animals. It's It's all part of the whole big picture, isn't it? Absolutely. And you've just reminded me of something too there. If for some reason, you know, you're not able to get out and volunteer with an organisation, perhaps you haven't got the time uh, time for it or you're not able to get out there physically, there is another way you can get involved through citizen science projects. So there's a number of uh, online citizen science projects. You can, you know, obviously there's a lot of apps you can download on your phone and websites you can get involved with, such as the Wild Pollinator Project. I talked about Wild Orchid Watch before, but there's even museums that are called for people to log on to their website and help identify pictures that might have you know certain images in them so they've got this big database of photographs and they're looking for for ones you know say camera trap photos and they're looking for the photos that have an animal in them they need people to sit there and look through you know hundreds if not thousands of photos just you know a bit like tinder flick flick <laughs> flick until you right. until you actually you know find an image with something to report and there's this for all sectors of science i've heard about it for astrophysics as well they're looking for people to look at night constellations yeah there's um, all sorts we did a whole episode with a, dr a, phil reitman yeah there you go after someone yeah it was at annie's of what we how do you remember that <laughs> i listened to the podcast i was a wildlife show yeah they, Phil, philip's the man for that stuff yeah 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 you might discover mm. something new okay there's a lot of orchids, we know that. Your three favourite orchids, no pressure, go. Blimey, you could have told me that question was going to come. <laughs> orchids do I like? What orchids do I like? There's, I'm intrigued by all of them at the moment. It's a Rothschild. <laughs> <laughs> the Marlborough lights. <laughs> uh, so I'm intrigued by all orchids at the moment. I'm, they're just all fascinating to me. There's some um, genus that I'm finding. I love the green hoods. Yeah, I love the green hoods. I like they're they're like your common garden band? variety of you know they're so common, but then they're so diverse. They're little, they're big, they're colourful, they're stripy. They're you know anyway. I love the green hoods, and I love the way that they actually trap insects inside them, like a little trap door, and the insect is trapped in for a period of time and until it presses the emergency release button inside the flower, it can't get out. Is that right? Yeah, I'm sold. Is that what <laughs> they're in. doing? Yeah. Wow. So they're trapped and buzzing around inside the hood. That's what the hood's for. Really? Yeah. And I then I, I love the sun orchids as well. They're so tiny, like, you know, the, the flowers are only the size of your little fingernail. Um, but they're so colourful and so delicate and so particular. How come I've, I've got several species of sun orchid here, but how come some years I don't see a flower? You may be looking when the temperature is not high enough. They need uh, 24 degrees or higher in order to flower and open. Actually open. They'll flower, but they may not open. They are fussy, aren't they, some yeah. of these orchids? Mm. But also all orchids don't flower every year. They might be three years in between. 
Anyway, you interrupted me when I was talking about my top three. Uh, sorry, please continue. <laughs> uh, so Greenhoods, Sun Orchids and Blimey. All right, I'm going to say the Underground Orchid from Western Australia. So it completely flowers underground. No one ever sees it. No one knows about it. I've heard about this. Yeah. yeah. And there's a dog that can sniff it out. Is that correct? Oh, there probably is. Dogs Just smart. one dog. Like a truffle dog. There's a dog, yeah. <laughs> one that, dog called Bruce. Because they've, they've talked about there are, where this underground orchid occurs, there's similar habitat here in the Adelaide Hills, and it's thought that, who knows, maybe we've got some laying under the ground somewhere. But we haven't got the dog. We just need the dog. Or we um, need to dig up all the bushland. Yeah, that's it. Find it. Bulldoze it. Bulldoze it. Anyway, so I named three. I'm quite happy with that. But um, just to say that, you know, I've only just begun the studies of orchids and I'm particularly focused on South Australia at the moment. But ask me in another year, I reckon I'll give you a, a list as long as my arm. And I reckon you'll walk away and think, oh, I should have said that one. I should have said this one. Yeah. The, the great thing with orchids is when you really look close at the flowers and study them, they are stunning. Absolutely mm. stunning. Well, we've got the um, spider orchid here. There's a few different types of spider orchid. There might be a couple here. I've not got down to the species level. That is the first wild orchid that I found all by myself when I first got into this, but I like their um, botanical name, Arachnicus, <laughs> just like arachnid, but now they're called Caledonia. They've had a name change as well. So, But I still prefer to call it Arachnicus. Yeah, that's a cool name. Sam, thank you so much for coming around today and giving us your time. That was awesome. Yeah, that's wonderful. Thank you for having me. It's been wonderful to meet you both and see the animals and just hang out in this sunny little patch on your veranda. It's a beautiful day today for mm. you, so yeah, it's great. Oh, we've done well. We'll have to have you back another year in the springtime and, and when you finish your PhD and have another chat. Uh, my PhD might take about another seven years, so happy to come back <laughs> you know, when I've got some results, some data. I'll come back before another seven years. Great. And everybody, thank you for listening. <laughs>